Welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Baseball Buds Podcast. I'm your host, Richie. Joining me, as always, is Matt. And for those of you who listened to us last week, we have survived. We got through New York. Um, Nobody lost any limbs. We didn't lose anybody. Uh, We might have lost some brain cells and some liver function. But all that being said, the trade deadline did go down while we were in New York. So that was fun to see. But... Let's welcome Matt. Matt, how did you enjoy your bachelor party? It was great. We got to uh, witness Justin Verlander's final home start as a New York Met. That it's, was awesome. It's funny because I was talking to one of our other buddies on the plane on the way home, and I was like, you know, I, I don't even know how many home starts Justin Verlander made this season. And I was like, I don't really think it could have been that many. Um so that was cool. Had a, he had a really nice start as well. Um, City Field was fantastic. I, I think we probably both agree. New York um, has two great ballparks, but I definitely prefer the Yankee Stadium. Um, now that City Field's bad at all, it's just how do you beat Yankee Stadium? I mean, we show up and there's thousands of people waiting to get into the gates. And that was the first time I've ever seen that. Um, that was pretty incredible. And we got lucky, kind of found a sneaky way in. So we prevailed, Had uh, had a great experience. Yeah, I'm curious because we went to the Yankee game on promotional night where there was a free hat given to the first, I think it was 10 or 15,000 fans. So I'm curious if that, how big of a role that had with the lines. But nonetheless, Yankee Stadium, I don't know when it was renovated. It had to have been in the last five to 10 years or if not less. But man, that was just an awesome experience. We got to see Monument Park, which is did I say that right? Monument Park, which is in center field, all the Hall of Famers for the Yankees. That was awesome. That was an experience. Um, riding the subway, that was fun. Um, some great memories were made, that is for sure. Yeah, definitely the subway wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, I've had experiences living in Los Angeles and taking their subway system. Absolutely disgusting and just, ugh. And New York was very clean, very respectful. Um yeah, I definitely have a different perspective leaving New York than I did going in. Well, I wouldn't say clean. I would say it's cleaner than what the movies and TV shows project. So I wouldn't say it's the cleanest city, but you also have a different perspective because you would say L.A. is dirtier than New York. I don't have any perspective on that. I do have a funny story, though. Um, didn't read the full article, but when I got back to Milwaukee um, out here in Waukesha, I did see on the news that a train derailed in New York the, our final day. So luckily we were not on that. So uh, counting our blessings there, that was interesting to hear. It was just like the uh, the crane that fell in New York City when yeah, we were there. Yeah, started on fire. Yeah, and I was and like, the other I thing, that is. The other thing I didn't realize is um, all the migrants coming from Mexico, apparently there was like 20,000 dropped off in New York, but I don't recall seeing like any groups of migrants. So... We must have missed them. Yep. Either way. Yep. They. Uh, did you see any of them? No, I didn't the, see. A couple days. No. Didn't see. Didn't see a single one. I mean, we didn't. We didn't hang around much, you know. And also, like, I yeah, think we got. I think this is the hard perspective a lot of people are going to have too. Like now that we've been, it's a massive, massive city. Um, you know, we hung out in like two or three different areas. We went to Brooklyn for what, like a short period of a day at night. And like, for the most part, we were over by Times Square. We were Lower East Village. And like, it, it definitely gives me a different perspective. Uh, there were a couple of bars that a, a buddy of mine wanted to hit in Long Island. And it was just like, we're not going to Long Island. That's not happening. Um, and again, perspective based. But yeah, I had a great time. And uh, we got some Yankee gear. 
Um, you know, got to have a great argument from the seventh inning to the ninth inning at Yankee Stadium. Thanks, Reed. Um, didn't win that one, but uh, I'll have you next time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, definitely want to go back to New York. Yeah, so speaking of New York, let's just jump right into the trades because the two biggest ones happen to be with the New York Mets. Um, the first one that was made was Max Scherzer going to the Texas Rangers for Luis I'm just going to say Luis Angel Acuna. I don't know the proper pronunciation. Do you know that? I was just call him Luis Angel. Yeah, I mean, we're going to, we'll find out once he's called up. You know, like I'm sure there's a yeah, way that he wants it pronounced. They'll say it the proper way. So, off the bat, what's your first reaction when you heard about the Max Scherzer deal? Well, I liked it a lot, and I wanted to see, you know, what the dominoes were going to be for the rest of the trades made at the deadline. You know, if, if Cease was traded or Verlander was traded, like what these big-name players um, from a rotational piece would bring back. I felt like giving up Scherzer for Just Acuna was a bit of a steal for the Rangers. Obviously, the Mets are also paying Scherzer's contract, or at least a large portion of it this year and next year. And my thought was, okay, you get Acuna, but I would have really liked to see Walcott um, or Porter as well in there. And it didn't happen that way, right? And then, then we see Verlander's deal go down and they end up getting more prospects. But I really like the overall haul. Um, and, I, and I do think my perception has shifted a little bit too because honestly, like I think Verlander's a better pitcher than Scherzer. And I think the narrative on Scherzer in the league has probably gone down in, in regards to his overall value. So to get the future of your second base position, um, a possible, you know, perennial in the running for All-Star, as well as Ronald Acuna's brother, who will now play against him interdivisionally. I think this was a win for Max Scherzer going to the Rangers and for the Mets overall. I didn't even think about them being in the same division. Um, and just to put it out there, so the Texas Rangers will be paying Max Scherzer $22.5 million because I think his contract goes through 2024, so this year next. So they're on the hook for 22 and a half. Um, while the Mets will be paying 35 and a half million this year and next year. So I don't know how it's broken up, but the Mets are paying a majority of it. So it just goes to show you how much those prospects are costing. So let's move on now to the next Mets pitcher, and that was Justin Verlander. He goes to the Houston Astros for first-rounder Drew Gilbert and sleeper prospect Ryan Clifford, who we like a lot. And on the front end, you and I think the Astros might have given up too much for Justin Verlander. Do you still feel that way? Um, no, because when you look at the Astros possibly only paying $29 million over the course of two years and two and a third season, so they're going to get a third of him this season. They're going to get April, September in playoffs. They get 2024 and 2025, presumably if the 2025 kicks um, into effect. $29 million is a massive steal if you get, you know, a two or three rotational piece in Verlander. And what we saw on Sunday was, you know, Verlander doesn't look like he's changed that much from last year. And I think we were really hard on him early in the season. He had a lot of rust to knock off. Um, missed the majority of spring training. Was in a new environment. He looks good now. And obviously we're going to have to see how the rest of the season unfolds. But... Drew Gilbert, I think, starting outfielder, right? A guy that um, I think will have a good career. Maybe might might make an all-star two uh, or two. Um, Clifford is the big one for me. I think Clifford, who homered today, uh, has been rising up prospect rankings all season. We've been keeping an eye on him all year. He could be a piece that you look back on and you're like, man, I, you know, I didn't really want to give that up. But if you think about it, 
the money is outweighing the prospect pedigree and Clifford being a 10th or 11th round pick, like you're kind of selling high on him in a lot of cases. And um, Gilbert to me isn't a superstar asset. So I actually like this for both teams and I like it a lot. Yeah. So I don't have the exact numbers on the vested option for 2025, but I think it's like if he pitches 140 innings or 180 innings, then he gets a $35 million option in 2025. <clears throat> Having said that, excuse me, the Mets would be paying about fifty-four million, and you said it earlier, twenty-nine million would be on the hook for the Astros. So yeah, that's a steal if Verlander can produce like an ace. Let's move on now to the next big trade, and it hasn't gone well for the Angels, and that is they acquired Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez for Edgar Cuero, the catcher, and Kai Bush, who I believe was a second round pitcher who we talked about on our prospect preview when we went over the AL West. Matt, what were your initial reactions to this? And what did you think of Lucas Giolito's first outing with the Angels? Um, while you go over that, I'm going to see what if I can pull up what his line was in his first outing as an Angel. Yeah, it definitely wasn't a great appearance uh, coming into the Angel Red. You know what? I like the trade, though. Um, and we've kind of talked about this with Cuero in regards to how the Angels currently sit. Um, you know, Kai Bush is a player that I liked a lot, but kind of a back of the end rotation piece. I really thought the idea of him being uh, an, an immediate impact this season or next season was unrealistic. And I, and I think he's going to take time to develop. But when you talk about having Logan O'Hoppy and as well as Edgar Cuero, like one of the two has to be your predominant catcher. Cuero also being a little undersized at five feet, seven inches. That's a concern as well. Will the power actually play up in the major leagues? was aggressively placed in double-A this year as well. So, you know, hasn't really shown the numbers that we would like to see, but we have to kind of project that into the equation that he is uh, playing at a level uh, where he is one of the younger players and he's at one of the most challenging positions being a catcher. But I like this a lot for the White Sox. You presumably get your catcher of the future, the number two overall prospect in the Angels organization, as well as a possible flyer in Kai Bush. Um, who's going to have opportunity in this rotation as time goes on. And I think we're going to see a lot of that as we talk about some of these prospects and the moves that have been made is a lot of the opportunity these players are falling into. And from the Angels' perspective, you don't lose a whole lot because both of these players weren't going to help keep Shohei Otani in town. Giolito Lopez might be able to have a start here, a start there, where they really kind of push them closer to a wild card. So I think it was, I think it was a win-win for both of these teams. Um, and I would have been curious to see what Cuero would have gotten them if they had gone maybe a different route, like Verlander or Scherzer. Yeah, that is interesting because Giolito was one of the first pitchers to go in before the deadline, before Scherzer, before Verlander, and seeing what they gave up, be interesting because Giolito is a free agent, but. Having said that, his line as a first start for the Angels was three and two-thirds, eight hits, nine earned runs, three walks, and two strikeouts. I will say it was against the Braves in Atlanta, so take that with a grain of salt, but it's not looking too good, and I am not too hopeful for him moving forward. Having said that, let's move on to the fourth one, and this is one of my favorite trades of the the deadline because it's so simple and it makes sense for both sides. The Cleveland Guardians give up Aaron Savale to the Tampa Bay Rays for Kyle Manzardo, first baseman. And 
the Tampa Bay Rays needed pitching because they were hurting with injuries. And the Guardians could use some prospect help with Manzardo. And we'll talk to it a little bit later. But Manzardo has a clear path to the majors now in a subsequent trade that happens later that we'll talk about later in our rundown. So curious, Matt, who do you like this trade more for, Savali or Manzardo? I think it's good for both. Uh, Savali gets an opportunity to head down to Tampa and continue to elevate his stock, which throughout his career has been almost like a, a heartbeat meter, um, up and down and up and down. And when I actually, the, when the trade went down, and I looked at his overall season slash line. I was absolutely amazed at the ability that he's been showing this season. And you look at the Rays; they're decimated by injuries right now, uh, losing Shane McClanahan tonight to forearm tightness. So you know he adds to that IL stint of players. You know. Glasnow looked great Monday night when we saw him. They need help, and I think Savali is, is just the kind of player that you can plug into this rotation and kind of dwindle yourself towards the postseason. And then for Manzardo, you're right. Like when We, we texted each other when it happened, and we're like, oh, man, this is probably worst-case scenario for Manzardo, but that was just gut reaction. You know, We just have not seen uh, prospects really blossom in Cleveland, but again, opportunity. Manzardo is going to be stepping into an organization where he's going to be given that opportunity and he's going to be given it for an extended period of time, which has always been our concern down in Tampa. The way they mess around with lineups, the way that they play uh, lefties and righties against the predominant pitcher that day, and the plethora of players that can play at different positions on top of having um, Yandy Diaz locked up until 2025. So I think this is really good for Manzardo. He's the winner here. And then I think Savali is going to really come in and help the Rays kind of coast into the playoffs here as they continue to struggle. They need that solidified veteran arm. Yeah, the one thing I'll note on Kyle Manzardo is I think it's good for him just to get a, a change of scenery because I was listening to uh, – our friends at The Athletic, and I can't remember if it was Eno or Chris Welsh, but they mentioned there's some stories out there that Kyle Manzardo's dealing with some like serious off-the-field issues. I don't know if it's family or mental or whatever it is, but it's affecting his play on the field. And you got to take into account, in 2021, he batted 349, last year batted 327, and this year batting 238. So... This year seems to be the outlier when he was on a trajectory to be in the majors already. So I'm curious to see if that might be the jump start he needs to get his season back on track. And maybe it doesn't happen before the end of the year, but maybe it gets him on the right track for next year. Yeah, I was, I was curious oh, what was going on in his life. Um, and it's not my business to share, you know, on a recorded podcast that we released, but if you're interesting with what's going on with Manzardo, you can just give it a quick Google search. Um, it's it's family related, and you know it sucks. I think we we dehumanize, dehumanize these guys a lot of the time, and this is a young kid, and um, you know you have a lot going on with your organization and your professional um, acumen as you try to ascend to the major leagues, and we have something going on so seriously back home. I can see how that would weigh on him. Um, you know, this is, this is good. I think overall, this is going to be good for both, but I think realistically we need to see 2024 season, how Manzardo can bounce back. Hopefully once some of this off the field issues that he's dealing with emotionally can kind of heal themselves and move past it. But, um, again, great trade loved it for both teams. Yeah. So let's move on now to the fifth trade that we liked. Um, and that was Jordan Montgomery and Chris Stratton from the St. Louis Cardinals going to the Texas Rangers for pitcher John King, Tacoa Roby and shortstop Thomas Segacy and Tacoa Roby slots in now as the number four prospect for the Cardinals and Thomas Segacy at the number eight 
prospect for the Cardinals. So they instantly get two top 10 talents for their farm system. So see, they can't do any wrong here. Um, I guess my question for you, Matt, is Jordan Montgomery to the Rangers. Where do you see him? Do you see him as like their three, four, five? They have Scherzer. They have Martin Perez. Um, I'm blanking on some other guys, but where do you see them fitting Jordan Montgomery? Is he more of a back rotation, or do you think they're using him as their 2-3 moving forward? Well, I think now that you're talking about the injury to Avaldi, you know, it's kind of up in the air. Scherzer today came out, had a nice game, uh, did allow three runs right off the bat, but it was able to get his nerves down and, and really pitch to dominance in the second half of that game. Uh, John Gray's been pretty nice this season. I, th- I think you're probably looking at, though, Montgomery and Gray being that like variable 2-3 until Evaldi gets back. Evaldi gets back. I think you solidify him at the number two. I think Montgomery goes number three, Gray number four. Um, but this Montgomery trade was absolutely necessary for them to continue their playoff hunt because they lost Evaldi day of trade deadline. So that was a big breaking news piece there. Um, and being mindful that the Astros have passed them for division leader as well, you know, acquiring Verlander, who we talked about earlier. So big-time shakeup within the Rangers and the Rays uh, rotations. I think whoever can solidify that and kind of calm the nerves is going to have a better uh, track towards September, or excuse me, October. But um, Montgomery was definitely a piece that was needed, and Roby has massive injury concerns. He's been up and down with injuries over the last couple of years. That's, That's a big reason I think the Rangers were willing to trade him. Thomas Segesi, not a sexy prospect, but a guy that has had great numbers this year. We're going to talk about him a little bit later. I kind of put uh, the Matt McLean comp on him, you know, 2.0, because he's not the sexy player, but he just plays baseball well. Uh, and I don't really know much about John King, so that's a name that's kind of just up in the air for me. Yeah, I kudos to you. The Pretty much exactly what I was going to say. I don't know much about John King. So let's move on now to the next trade. This was one I also liked. Pretty simple. Uh, the Chicago White Sox send third baseman Jake Berger to the Miami Marlins for pitcher Jake Etter. Um, we've talked about him on the podcast before, coming back from Tommy John, I believe it was. Um, so he's got some health risk, but he's got some pretty nasty stuff if he can stay healthy. And love it for the Marlins because we talk all the time. They can develop the pitching. And they can't develop the hitting. So why don't you just go and develop your pitching and then trade them for hitters that are already proven. Seems like exactly what they did with this trade and another trade we'll be talking about before we move on. So I guess my question for you, Matt, is when do we see Jake Etter with the Chicago White Sox? You know, you had the Tommy John, then you had the broken foot this spring training. So his development has really been kind of stifled quite a bit by that. I think it's kind of up in the air. You know, we're talking about this White Sox organization have acquiring Kai Bush and Etter. Um, I, I think they're going to allow these guys to be a little bit combative and, and competitive in the minor leagues and then really bring them into spring training next year and see exactly what they've gotten out of everybody. I wouldn't be surprised to see Etter um, in the Arizona Fall League. I think that was something that we talked about when we were breaking down the White Sox or the, um, the Miami organization before this trade happened. You know, they really need to see and get these guys their innings built up so that they can see what they have. And and I think that's the way to go. If you look at his numbers this year in double A, he's three and five. Uh ERA is sitting at excuse me, let me pull that back a little bit. He's at single A. Um, ERA at a four six six. So obviously there's only been three games started, nine innings. You don't have a whole lot of reference point from him. So we need to see the innings start to be built back up. Um, you know, this is a Vanderbilt pitcher though. So I like the pedigree. I like what he's done in the past. 
I would say 2026 is probably the soonest we're looking. Excuse me, 2025 is probably the soonest we're looking at Eder in the White Sox rotation. Yeah, you were cor- you're correct. He's at double A, so I don't know if something glitched. But, yeah, he's got 24 innings at double A and nine and two-thirds at single A. So you're just missing that. He's got 33 and two-thirds oh, yes. overall. Oh, yes. Um, he's got a four-five-four ERA overall. So definitely working on some rust there. Um I like the strikeouts but, per innings, right? 38 and 29.2. Um, I think that's what yeah. we were profiling him as. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more of a strikeout, at least a strikeout per inning guy at minimum. That's his floor. Um, so it just depends on what he can do with his ceiling is the question, how you bounce back from that injury. Definitely, Let's, definitely Arizona Fall League, though, right? Like, you have to find a way I to get think this so, kid his yeah. innings. Yeah. I mean, before his Tommy John 2021 had 71 and a third innings pitched. So he's at least got to get to that mark. I mean, so he needs at least 40 more innings. I mean, let's see how long has his starts been. They can't be terribly long. He's been going about four or five innings. So he dominated double I mean, A like in 2021. I mean, that's a fantastic yeah. line, right? Like, I think what they did was 7 ERA, 99 strikeouts and 71 and a third. So yeah, great numbers. Um so he's got 40 more innings left. He's going at 5. So yeah, like eight more starts left. 8 weeks. I don't know when double A ends, but I know it ends before I, yeah, he's got to go to the is Arizona Fall League if he's going to get to 71 innings before the end of the year. That's like a, a minimum. Yeah. I could see him I All mean right. with those numbers I could see him up next year. Um you know, this is a guy that you're going to be concerned about if he does come up in 2024 with innings, right? Because I think 120 next year is, if they can get him to that 70, is... I would say one... Well, yeah, I guess it depends on how much he gets by the end of the year and how many innings he can get to the AFL. If he can get to 80, then yeah, I could see him pushing 120. But I would I would say if he gets to 70, I think we're looking at 100, 110 next yeah, year. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, if he does come up, it's the tail end of next year. But, yeah, 2025 beginning is probably more likely. Well, and, and from the Berger perspective, I, I think you give up a pitcher like this. Like, I want to see a guy that's going to make immediate impact. And I know that Berger has had an up-and-down season and he's a streaky hitter. But I just feel like it's one of those trades that's a little bit lackluster. Um, I mean, I'm going to tell you this. This lineup is going to absolutely demolish left-handed pitching. You know, you have Berger, you have um, Jorge Soler, like a couple names you like. You know, you're going to have Josh Bell out of the equation, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, who's a switch hitter. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Berger Berger's just a little bit underwhelming for me. I like Eder enough where I would like to see a bigger piece moved. Yeah. I think it's great for the White Sox um, to get this type of talent um, for somebody like Jake Berger. But enough about Eder and Berger. Let's move on to a trade that I like for the Mar- Mariners well. Enough about the Marlins. Let's go to Mariners. They give up Paul Seawald, the reliever, to the Arizona Diamondbacks for infielder, utility man, Josh Rojas, outfielder, Dominic Canzone, and infielder, Ryan Bliss. On the surface, I think the Diamondbacks gave up a lot to get an aging reliever. Do you agree with me? I did originally, and then after diving into more of the numbers, um, I understand why the move was made. Um, my original reaction was that Bliss was someone you don't part with for an individual like Seawald. And I think the industry's um, consensus after looking at the numbers and after his promotion is that he really overperformed at AA. Uh, you and I kind of looked at it and weren't 
too impressed with what he's done with what bliss has done anywhere but double a um and then from the position of acquiring canzone canzone really didn't have a place to play in arizona so i I wish they would have gotten something more but i think seawald is exactly what this team needs they needed a closer for their playoff push and they got a guy that is a veteran presence who has proven it and they didn't give up Lawler. They didn't give up uh, a few of the other names that we really, really like in this organization. Um, uh, so I'm okay with it. Yeah. Um, I do like Ryan. I still think it's... <sighs> All right, let's not get hung up on it. Let's move on to the number eight deal. And that was the Dodgers acquiring Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly um, from the Chicago White Sox for outfielder Trace Thompson starting pitcher Nick Nastrini, and relief pitcher Jordan Leisure. Now, I think this is a good trade for each team. The Dodgers dealing with injuries and need rotation help. They get a bullpen piece in Joe Kelly, who used to be on the Dodgers. So it's like a nice little reunion, just like Justin Verlander. Trace Thompson didn't really need him. Nick Nastrini, he was part of that rotation in A Tulsa. And then this Jordan Leisure guy. Didn't really hear about him, didn't really know about him, looked into him. He slots in at the 27th overall prospect for the White Sox now. But he gets an 80-grade fastball on the scouting report for MLB Pipeline. 80 is the highest you can get. He was a 14th-round draft pick in 2021. He's got an amazing um, high 80 slider in there, too. Strikes out a a lot of people. He's got a sub-3 ERA, but I think if he can hone in, He's got some nasty stuff, and we talk about who's going to be the next Emmanuel Classe, who's going to be the next, um, you know, Ryan Helsley or Felix Bautista. I'm not saying this guy could be it, but, like, we very well could be looking at this trade two, three years from now and be like, oh, man, remember when Jordan Leisure was just a throw-in? So definitely somebody not to keep on, uh, keep sleeping on. But I had to look into Jordan Leisure because he, that was the first time I had heard of him. Yeah, Leisure is the most exciting name, I think, in the group for fantasy relevance, at least, you know, in the short term future. Uh, I think from a lot of what I read on him, he's projected to be middle of the bullpen until he can kind of build up his acumen for throwing strikes. Um, But you're talking about everything perfectly, Richie. Like this, this is an arm that you're acquiring. And it's surprising to to see the package that they got because I got um, Nick Nostrani here as a guy that could provide impact in this rotation next year. Um, we love what he's been doing with the rest of those kids at double a so far as we've watched the Dodgers. And I think what you're getting is the perfect trade partner for Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly and getting the white Sox more assets in this minor league system, because Lance Lynn has not been good all season. Joe Kelly reuniting in a place he's comfortable with the environment being LA. Um, this was a very, very big win for the white Sox, you know, having two pieces that can be major league players on top of having Trey Thompson, who slides in as a guy that can play every day as you start to trade away a lot of your assets. So I think this was great for both teams. Um, really interested to see what Lance Lynn provides the Dodgers. Maybe there's something they saw within their scouting, was it mechanical, whether it was just stamina base that they can really turn Lance Lynn around and, and continue those high strikeout games where you're starting to limit some of those runs allowed. But I thought this was a great return. And I think you said it best. We're going to look back in a few years and really look at like, wow, they got more for Lancelin than I think any other team probably was willing to offer. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. We've got two more big trades. I mean, obviously there was more than 10 trades, but these are the ones that we think are the most impactful. So we'll go to the ninth one. And that is the St. Louis 
Cardinals giving up Jack Flaherty to the Baltimore Orioles for Cesar Prito and pitcher Drew Rahm. So on the surface, I thought the Orioles got a steal. They got Jack Flaherty. They got to keep all their top prospects. We've been harping Heston Kierstead, Connor Norby, Joey Ortiz, Jordan Westberg, you name it. Um, I've been so blindsided that I haven't looked at the rest of what their prospects have been doing. And Cesar Prito, who was an international signee in 2022 at AAA and AA this year, he's betting 349, six home runs only, um, seven stolen bases. So the power and speed aren't necessarily there, but he's producing. And then Drew Rahm, he's going to slot in at the 26th overall prospect for the St. Louis Cardinals now. He's a left-handed pitcher. Um, has a high ERAs, but he's got the strikeout rate, 100 strikeouts in 86 innings, um, whips high at 1.7. So he might have been just a throw-in, but Preto is definitely the main piece for the Cardinals. He's now their number nine overall prospect for the Cardinals. So I don't think it's a bad haul, especially for Jack Flaherty. He's more on the lower tier of the caliber for pitchers that were available but he had a nice outing i think he pitched today we were recording on thursday august 3rd i'm trying to pull up because i think he went seven innings or something like that i'm stalling while i pull it up for you guys yeah today he went six innings four hits one run two strike or two walks and eight strikeouts against the toronto blue jays so love to see that matt Anything else you want to mention on Jack Flaherty? I kind of stole this one away from you. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we've been waiting all season for Flaherty to kind of reemerge as the player that we had seen three and a half years ago. We hadn't seen, you know, consistency from him this year. This was a great first start. I think switching leagues um, is a is a big win for him. You know, you're going over to the American League where less batters have um, have visualized and literally faced you in the batter's box. I think that's a win. And you're talking about two months, so he should be able to go through teams that aren't as familiar with him. And this is also a win for him personally because he's going to be a free agent. If he can get that ERA down below a three uh, seven five on the season, he's talking about making a significantly bigger payday this offseason than he would without the trade. So love this for Flaherty, and I also think this is one of those things where you know, we expected Baltimore to make a really big move. They didn't. I think the asking price around the league was probably higher than they would have liked. I think the asking price probably started with guys like Jackson Holiday in this organization um, or a plethora of packages with some of the names that we're going to talk about in a little bit. I think they balked at it and they said, OK, we're going to wait till the final 10 minutes and we're going to see what teams are desperate. Lo and behold, you have the Cardinals willing to go ahead and trade Flaherty for Brito, um and Rom, and they don't have to move a single one of their big names. I would expect that there's a couple moves in the offseason because, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, this organization has a lot of roadblocks for some of their high-end talent, and they have to start shelling off some of these prospects and getting major league talent to help them next year. Yeah, I'd love, I would love to see the Orioles make some moves in the offseason. I guess it's going to see what they do. They're, I think for sure they're a lock to make the postseason and how deep they go. And what they are missing will dictate what they do in the offseason. Well, and uh, there's something you and I were talking about, or maybe it wasn't you or I, someone else on the trip. Um, They get John Means back. That in itself is an acquisition. Um, John Means, I think. Yeah, to me, he slots in as probably their number one or two pitcher right after he's back. Now, given it's Tommy John, so like his control there, like it's going to take some time, but like he has the best pedigree on this team. 
We don't know what he's going to look like after the Tommy John, but like other than Wells, yeah, I would say I trust him the most, right? Grayson Rodriguez has been up and down, probably has the best arm talent. Um, Kremer has been okay. Like this team needed Jack Flaherty because now you're talking about John means Jack Flaherty, Tyler Wells. Like those are three names where it's like, maybe you can win the series as opposed to, okay, like they're just, they're going to lose because they just don't have it. So they acquired two pitchers at this deadline. John Means is on his way being on the IL. Um, I don't think it was as dire, especially knowing what was given up. Um, you know, and and also we don't we don't know the conversations. The Mets may have just stopped all conversations after the Jackson Holiday was a no, or after the Kobe Mayo was a no. I think those back of the um, those back behind closed doors conversations are big into trying to understand actually what happened with the deadline. Yeah, who will never know unless something gets leaked. All right, let's move on now to the last 10th big impact um, trade that went down, and that was the Cleveland Guardians giving up Josh Bell for Gene Segura and Khalil Watson. Funny enough, I believe we talked about Khalil Watson getting traded before he finds his potential. That happens with the Cleveland Guardians acquiring him. I think it's perfect timing because they just gave up Ahmed Rosario to the Dodgers um, in a lower lesser trade, but... I just took a look. In the last three games, Khalil Watson has three home runs. He's homered in the last three games he's played and four in the last five. Um, the Guardians wasted no time moving him to high A, um, which I think he spent high A, but he went down to rookie ball for two games before being traded, so I don't know what that's all about. Nonetheless, um, I like what his prospects could be development-wise from the Cleveland Guardians opposed to the Miami Marlins. And I'm just curious, do you think he can get to the level that we saw Jordan Lauer and Marcelo Meyer? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I think we're talking about a year behind. Um, and this is something that I have listed down in our winners. And I think you said it best, but I'll just kind of go in a little bit deeper here. You're talking about him being traded to a contact first organization. His biggest issue has been contact in zone strike rate as well as strikeouts. This will be the organization that can either fix him or he'll burn out. It is really that simple to me. Um, love the move for him. I think we're talking about possibly a double A promotion next year. He's going to have to start to show some improvements in that in zone contact as well as his strikeout. I think the Cleveland Guardians though, are the team to possibly really tap into him as being a first round pick as well as a top 10 pick. I think he was top 10, top 15 at least. Um, I think he was fifth. No, I got it right here. So let me just pull it up. Yeah, he was a 16th. 16th, okay. 16th overall. Um, but yeah, I think he's going to be behind, be behind the guys that you just mentioned with Meyer and, and Lawler. And that's okay. Like, those were higher higher in draft picks. Um, you know, he's he, – we said it a couple weeks ago. Like, he got kind of the short end of the stick being drafted by Miami. And, um, you know, when you had the concerns that he had coming out of the draft, being drafted by an organization like that, it's understandable why he's kind of um, – Law, like little lollard a little bit like I, I i understand it um love to love to pick for him in regards to the trade and honestly like it was a it was a hand away josh bell is not a player that i think we've talked about much this season as being fantasy relevant but clearly miami was willing to just take a loss and move on yeah um completely agree i like josh bell i like jake Berger for them so Let's move on now to the winners and losers overall. We talked about the top 10 impact. I think by far the biggest winners at the trade deadline have to be the Texas Rangers. 
not only did they get Max Scherzer, they also got Jordan Montgomery. Um, we talked about they got Chris Stratton, but they also got a role this Chapman earlier in the, uh, before the trade deadline. So not only did they get rotational help, but they also got bullpen help. And another trade that wasn't really mentioned was they got Austin Hedges. Jonah Himes on the IL with a wrist tendon injury. He's going to sit out two to three weeks, but it's possible he has season-ending surgery. So Austin Hedges, a depth piece there. So the Rangers are not going to skip a beat. They've got the rotation help. They've got the bullpen. They've still got the bats. I think they are the clear-cut winners of the trade deadline. Do you agree with me? Um, I, I think they won the trade deadline. I think there's two different questions here. Who is the best team coming out of the deadline with their acquisitions? And then who accumulated the most help? Uh, I think the Rangers accumulated the most help. I think the Astros are the best team coming out of the deadline in regards to um, teams that acquired. And I, I like everything the Rangers did, but a lot of it has been to make up for lost pieces, right? Scherzer fills in for DeGrom. Montgomery fills in for Avaldi. Hedges fills in for uh, Jonah Heim. Chapman's been really nice since he came over. That would be the, like one of the first pieces I look at as like an acquisition piece. But the reason I say that I think the Astros come out as the best team because they didn't have Justin Verlander four, five, six, seven weeks ago, right? Like they went into this season with the idea that uh, Valdez and Christian Javier and Hunter Brown were going to be enough. I think what we've seen this season is they have been nice, but they in the postseason will not be enough. They've added Justin Verlander, and in my eyes, you're talking about the Astros being a front-line con contender again, and I like them over the Rangers going into the postseason now. Okay, from that standpoint, I will agree with you. I was more so under the assumption we were talking about the winners of the most <laughs> You're assets. not wrong, and, that, and I know that's how you went with it, but I had to throw that's that fair. in there because, that's fair. because I – I just feel bad for the Rangers. Like they had, they had no choice but to make all these moves, and they're absolutely like their GM win, win, right? Like fantastic wins. It's just like, it's like, damn, like you made all these wins because you had bad luck, and we're looking in the same division, in the same state, and I'm looking across, and I'm like, damn, they're a better team than us now. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to the second winner, and I have the. Houston Astros, not only did they get Justin Verlander, but they also got Kendall Graveman. I don't have the details on that other than Kendall Graveman was the reliever for the Chicago White Sox. Um, so they get a little bit of bullpen depth with Justin Verlander. I don't think there's much more to say on it. You kind of hit it right on the head. So do you have anything else to say before I move on to our number three winner? Um, just that I like Graveman going back. I think I think this could be a, a really good change in scenery for him, and I think this could be a piece that could be pivotal, pivotal come playoffs. Okay, let's move on to the number three winner, and I put the winners together. So um, if you don't agree with this, please let me know. I think the number three winners here are the Miami Marlins. We already talked. They got two of the big top ten impactful ones. They got Jake Berger to fill in at third base. They got Josh Bell. Um, but the other ones we didn't talk about is they also got Ryan Weathers from the San Diego Padres. They got Jorge Lopez from the Minnesota Twins. And they got David Robertson from the New York Mets. So get some bullpen help. Get an additional piece. I think Ryan Weathers probably slots into a middle long relief role for them. And then, yeah, they get additional help at the, the corners for them. Do you think the Miami Marlins are the number three winners from the standpoint of gaining acquisitions? 
You know, I, I do know that you kind of break it down, and it's weird. I kind of feel like they're they're going like Atlanta Braves when Acuna was out with the Jorge Soler and Duvall and Rosario um, deadline deals where it was kind of like, oh, okay, that's sweet. Like, have fun losing in the playoffs. Um, now, the Marlins are not that, that Braves team, but I, I'm thinking about them just in a perspective of like a wild card, a three-game series, and Talking about a team that could be very sneaky, as you mentioned, like bullpen help. David Robertson has kind of emerged this season is back to form as elite level closer. Um, you know, he's not a hater. He's not a class A, but like he goes into the game and the game's basically over. He just doesn't have the same strikeout numbers some of these elite level guys do. And you're talking about Weathers, who we've been looking at from a prospect pedigree for six, seven years now as a guy that's always had arm talent, but's never put it together. And then, as I mentioned, Berger and Bell really help with the concept of, of hitting left, uh, left-handed left pitchers. Um, and Bell, for that matter, right-hander as well, since he's a switch hitter. So I could I could see them being sneaky and, and a team at least that's going to be a thorn in your side in the playoffs now, as opposed to before the deadline, you were kind of looking at Miami as kind of an easy dead fish come wild card round. Yeah, I'm curious to see what happens with that wild card um, race right now. So... Having said that, let's move on now to a winner from the selling perspective. And I was torn between going between the Cleveland Guardians and the Chicago White Sox. But we'll start off with the Cleveland Guardians. We talked about how they got Kyle Manzardo. They got Cleo Watson. They got Gene Segura. But the other one that's forgotten about is they sent Ahmed Rosario away for Noah Syndergaard. And they got cash for him. I think that was almost like they were deciding whether or not they wanted to buy or not, and they were buying Noah Syndergaard. But either way, I think it works out in the end. They'll fix Noah Syndergaard. I'm pretty confident in that. Um, Ahmed Rosario's gone. Cleo Watson potentially could fill in. They got Kyle Manzardo. He's got a clear path with Josh Bell. I think he's Josh Bell is going to be a free agent. So I, I like the sneaky moves by the Cleveland Guardians, but it was, it was a toss-up between the White Sox and Guardians. Well, I think you look at the Guardians and the White Sox and what the Guardians acquired are, are closer, at least their um, impact players. Like, look at Manzardo, right? He's probably going to be their starting first baseman come next year. Cleo Watson being a top 16 uh, draft pick with elite-level power, like, probably has more upside than guys like Cuero, um, Bush, I think even Nostrami. Um, and I, I like the Guardians here. And I think what's interesting is you talked about possibly fixing Noah Syndergaard. This could be a move where they decide to give him a short-term extension based off three, four starts and mechanical adjustments. And now they have him entered into the fold as kind of a veteran presence as they continue to push these young kids up into the major league rotation. But also for an organization much like Miami that cannot develop hitters at least um, consistently, Talking about adding two big-time prospects with a lot of potential, one that's going to be a, a major league-ready player and has been developed, and then Watson being the, the second piece here, as we talked about earlier. So I think the Guardians did a very, very good job uh, of bringing in some assets that can make them competitive very quickly. Yeah, I, I think they're definitely closer than the White Sox. So let's move on now to them. We talked a little bit on who they got, but where they rank in their prospect. I mean, I don't. we don't need to touch on it too much, but... Edgar Cuero slots in at their number two prospect. Jake Etter at their number four. Nick Nostrini at their number five. Kai Bush as number seven. And who am I missing? Who am I missing? Who am I missing? Uh, Jordan Leisure at number 27. So they significantly bolster their um, farm system for some for a team that really only had Colson Montgomery and Christian Mania. And 
Noah Schultz, like outside of that, they didn't really have anything to write home about. So I definitely like what they did restocking. I don't like that they didn't get rid of Dylan Cease, but there's still time to do that next year or in the off season. Um, anything else you want to mention on the White Sox before we go to the last winner of the deadline? Yeah, I mean, you said it best. We were talking about the White Sox as possibly one of the worst farm systems in the major league, if not the worst. Um, I think this helps a lot. They didn't acquire any high-end superstars. Um, you know, I think Manzardo could be put in that classification as a possible high-end player. Um, but they were able to really like restock the farm and, and really put themselves in a position where, you know, draft picks are more important now. Like they're building a foundation, and I think Edder's probably going to be the best player out of all of these. Uh, if we see that strikeout potential carry over, and him get back to form after now he's had Tommy John, so this is still going to be a middle of the road team, if not a, a below average team. But at least they were able to put some major, some future major leaguers into their pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. All right, the last winner I have, and feel free to interject with any other winners after this, but I have the Philadelphia Phillies. They acquire Michael Lorenzen for prospect, I'm going to butcher this name, Hao Yu Lee, um, second baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies. He wasn't really a high ranking on the Phillies. I want to say he was like in the 15 to 25 range in the organization. He instantly becomes the number six overall prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, for the Detroit Tigers. Yu Lee has risen from rookie ball to high A with the Phillies. Um, subpar numbers, like, I, I mean, I shouldn't say subpar. We're doing average, batting 283, um, only five home runs, 14 stolen bases. So um, pretty much doing what you'd expect from him. A little bit of background on how Yu Lee, he was a international signing back in 2021 out of, oh, I had it. I lost it. Should be Korea, right? Yeah, I can't remember if it was Korea or Japan. Either way, um, somewhere over there, a Taiwan. He was Taiwan. signed out of Taiwan. Okay. Um, so he's still only 20 years old, so he's very young. I think this was great for the Phillies. They didn't have to give up any big-time prospects. And Michael Lorenzen in his first start against the Miami Marlins, so that was a very impactful game because they're both in the race for the wild card because they're not catching the Atlanta Braves for the NL East. He went eight innings, six hits, two earned runs, one walk, five strikeouts. So Michael Lorenzen is still continuing to have a great season, and the Phillies have added to their rotation help. I mean, there was talk that Andrew Painter was going to come up and be that fifth spot because they didn't have somebody. Now Michael Lorenzen can come up and be that for them. So I really like what they did here, even though it wasn't as an impactful player like Dylan Cease or a James Paxton or Eduardo Rodriguez. I still think this helps them out. Yeah, I like the deal a lot. And again, you know, cost, I think, is key at this time of the year, right? We look at Scherzer, we look at Verlander. Um, like this was a lower tier prospect. I liked it a lot. I think Lee has a lot of opportunity at the major league level. He's a, a bat first contact first player, um, you know, talking about playing in a big ballpark, which is Comerica. Um, I, I think there's opportunity. So I like where he where he's going, um, being sent over to Detroit. We're going to differ in opinion here. I think um, my next winner, my last winner is actually New York Mets. I absolutely love what they did with this deadline. Uh, I think they added three possibly four future major league starters in in the deadline and I, and I don't think that's something that can be shied away from we talked about acuna and gilbert a little bit we talked about clifford um uh, vargas is another piece that they got in the robertson trade 
think all four of these could be, you know, elite level prospects over the course of the next year. Gilbert, obviously, I don't necessarily think is a superstar. I think Clifford could be. I think Acuna could be. And I think Vargas has the opportunity to be a Luis Arias type player at the major leagues. Um, but again, you know, you're going to talk about it here in a minute. They had to pay for these prospects. So there is some downside to that. Yeah, and that's the sole reason why they're losers is we talked about how much they're paying for Scherzer and Justin Verlander. That's like 60 or $70 million. I don't, I don't have the, the full numbers here, but that's a lot to pay for some prospects that you never know which prospects are going to hit and which ones aren't. I would say Acuna's pretty can't miss at this point. Gilbert looking like pretty good, but he's had some struggles. Clifford's been on fire in Vargas as well. So I don't really have much more to say on the Mets. We've talked about them. The next losers I have are the L.A. Dodgers. They had a deal to acquire Eduardo Rodriguez from the Detroit Tigers, and it fell through because Rodriguez invoked his no-trade clause, stating that he wanted to stay closer to family on the East Coast and didn't want to go to the West Coast. But then later it came out that um, he wanted to have some contract um i don't know what the word i'm looking for is securities or insurances that there was going to be extensions or he was going to get paid more or less i don't have the full details on it but then there was talks that the dodgers were going to pivot and get james paxton and that fell through and they ultimately go and get ryan yarborough from the kansas city royals I will say they still got Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly, but they were looking for that last lefty piece to bolster out their rotation, and they couldn't get it done. I think they could have easily got something for Paxton. You had all those double-A guys that we've been talking about and hyping up, um, and you could have easily moved one of them for Paxton, but I'm not the GM, so I can't make those decisions for them. What are your thoughts on the Dodgers? Do you think they could have did more? Do you think they did just enough? Are they losers for you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's winners because I love any time the Dodgers lose. Um, you know, this is one of the first po- this is one of the first deadlines that we see the Dodgers actually not be able to come through and make a big deal. And it's interesting from Erod's perspective because you're talking about sticking around Detroit, which is a middling team and a team that may make some noise next year, may not, depending on everything plays out. We had an opportunity to go to the uh, the NL West and being a dominant team with the Dodgers, just chose not to. Um, interesting, but. You know, this is kind of anyone's game this year. Erod and Paxton, for me, at least don't really push any team over the edge. I already kind of like the top end of the Dodgers rotation. So, you know, like, would it have really been that big of a, a trade for either of them? I don't know. And I think probably what they were giving up is maybe a Dalton Rushing or um, a number of other names that we've talked about this season. But definitely, um, Lance Lynn was not enough. So I agree with your losers classification here. Yeah, let's move on now to the next Two losers. We're just going to talk to them back to back because we've been hyping both of these teams up and we were looking so, I mean, I was looking forward to these two teams making trades and that's the Cincinnati Reds and the Baltimore Orioles. I was looking forward to some big blockbuster deals and neither of them did that. The Reds made one trade and it was Joe Boyle to the Oakland Athletics for a middle reliever, Sam Mole. I mean, come on. You need some rotation help. There's all these pitchers that just got dealt. You've got this far. I don't know. I'm upset. Orioles, they did get Jack Flaherty, but they could have made a bigger splash than that. And 
I don't know. I'm disappointed. Maybe they do something in the offseason or next trade deadline. Maybe they both hit their window a year earlier than they thought, and they're like, well, let's just ride it out. That very well could be it. But, man, that is disappointing for me. <laughs> I don't know if you're feeling the same way I am. Well, you know, we kind of talked touched on the Orioles earlier. My guess is the asking price was more than they were willing to move on, which I understand. Um, but from the Reds' perspective, you know, if you really look at a lot of the pieces that were moved, it was NL pieces being moved over to the AL. You look at the Mets moving on from Scherzer and Verlander. I think a big question there is would the Mets have even considered trading the Reds with the idea that both of those pitchers were going to be paid by the Mets and the Mets might have to go up against them next year if they are contenders. Mm, so the price point might have been much higher. You know, Does Novel Marte get the deal done? Are they then required to possibly move a, an Andrew Abbott for a Verlander with a Marte? Um, so I, I think that probably hurt their, their chances quite a bit. And I, and I don't think names like Savali or Giolito were even probably kicked around by Cincinnati because it, they probably feel the same way the rest of the league does, which is like, well, who cares? And then finally, you're talking about Dylan Cease, and he's been up and down with just a terrible performance this week alone. So I think a lot of teams that were probably thinking about Cease probably really you know, thank their lucky stars after the performance he just gave out. Um, I, I understand why both teams didn't make a deal. But I expect both teams to be very, very active this offseason. And I do still expect to see the names of like Keston Hurstead, Novel Marte, possibly Kobe Mayo. Um, uh, who is it? Is it Nick Nurse? Who is the other one that we're, we're really thinking about? Um, Joey Ortiz. Joey Ortiz is another possibility. Um, Connor Norby. Like these are these are names that should be traded. You know, I think when you're looking at the Orioles, like they've got to choose to keep either Keston Hurstead or Kobe Mayo. Both projected to possibly be first baseman at this time. Novel Marte possibly being the third baseman. Well, then Jonathan India needs to get traded so McLean can go to second base. Like a lot needs to shape up. And I think the disappointment is we were waiting for to see some of those dominoes fall so we could project these teams moving forward. Yeah, the only thing I'll mention on the Mets inner league trading to the Reds is there was something that came out with Max Scherzer. He implied that he had a talk with the GM or the owner. I don't remember which one, but he said that they are going into next year as a transition year and thinking about competing 2025 at the earliest, but more likely 2026. So from that standpoint, that's the end of Verlander or Scherzer's deal. So I don't know if that would have either way, we can't go back. We can't do hindsight. So let's move on now. I think the next losers are the Arizona diamondbacks, um, I have that simply for the reason that they got Paul Seawald. We talked about how they, I thought they gave up a lot, but you made some good points. But then also they give up Andrew Chafin to the Brewers. So like, it doesn't make much sense to me. You go and get bullpen help, but then you go and give the Brewers some bullpen help. So what are you really doing here? I'm just a little confused. Um, and they didn't make any real big splashes it's like yeah we kind of want to compete with the dodgers and get the the pennant but also like we just want to not upset our fans here like matt maybe it's time you take over here you already got the hat to go with it yeah i mean i think again back to a conversation with the orioles and the reds i i, I think asking price was probably high there are less sellers this season than there normally are because there are more teams making the playoffs um, and you know, you saw a few teams that are in the contention race this year buying and selling. I think that's just kind of a part of the, 
part of the deadline where you feel like a piece may fit here and a piece may be moved here. If you think about it, uh, the Diamondbacks were acquiring Seawald and they're going to then need to probably demote or trade a road, uh, a relief player to free up the spot for Seawald. So I think that's all we were really seeing there. Um, and, you know, we talked about their lineup a little bit. Like we don't really foresee them having to bring in a, a big name or even like a middling name like the Brewers did uh, with Mark Canna. And then from a rotation perspective, like I think Brandon Fott was the big name that we kind of thought they may trade if it wasn't Jordan Lawler. And there just wasn't a name out there. Again, like it was really the Mets selling and setting the market and then kind of settling for some of these other players or going after Dylan Cease. I liked them holding Pat. Um, and I think we watched Brandon Fott today go seven innings with seven strikeouts, one run. Like clearly it was the right decision to hold on to him. You need to allow him to develop. And I think that was probably their mentality where it's like we're good with what we have. Yeah, I mean, if you're good with what you have, just stay pat, though. Like, gave up your prospects. And the other trade I forgot is they went out and got Tommy Pham. So, like, you trade Dominic Canzone, outfielder, and then you get Tommy Pham. Like, if that's the case, like, why not just ride it out with Canzone? Like, I mean, yeah, maybe Tommy Pham's a little more experienced. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not in baseball world making those decisions so well the last thing you want to do is make a wild card you know go up against the brewers or you know the dodgers whoever probably brewers let's just say brewers here and you know have a lead two out of three games blow it because you don't have a closer and you look back and you're like it could have been dominic calzone that literally changed the course of our 2023 season you know like i understand the closing perspective i understand um Tommy Pham, like he's a veteran player that has showcased ability. He's not a rookie out there who's going to look completely overmatched in the postseason. Yeah, that's um, the only thing I can think about is the experience that those guys yeah. give him. Yeah, and and they didn't give up top tier prospects. Like Canzone was never going to be anything more than a fourth outfielder than for them, right? Bliss, maybe we're wrong. Maybe he's a an all star level second baseman. And if that's the case, everyone will look back on this trade for years to come and be like, man, can you believe they traded Bliss for a, a cl- an aging closer? But clearly they felt differently. Yeah. All right. I think that's it for the teams that were losers. There are four players that I have marked as losers. So we can go through them pretty quickly. Um, I'm going to go down the list, um, list all four of them, and you tell me if there's anything that sticks out. Eduardo Rodriguez ends up staying with the Detroit Tigers, doesn't go to a competing team. We'll see what happens. Dylan Cease stays with the White Sox. We've talked about him. James Paxson stays with the Red Sox, didn't get dealt. And then lastly, Lucas Giolito's going to the Angels in that hitter-friendly ballpark. Um, Those are my losers for pitchers. It happens they all be pitchers. But anything else you want to say or any other losers you want to mention, Matt? No, I think that I think that's a pretty good snapshot for what we have. All right. The last segment we have for you guys is which prospects rose and which ones have fallen after the deadline. So um, I think we'll just – I mean, we've talked about a handful, if not all, of these guys. So, um, yeah, we'll go through the first three, and I'll let you, you talk about them, Matt. So the first one we have is Kyle Manzardo. Then we have Luis Angel Acuna and Khalil Watson. Matt, what are the reasons why these three are rising after the deadline? Yeah, we talked about Manzardo, I think, playing time, role. um, That was something we spoke on earlier. That's a big reason why we have him as number one. Acuna, same thing, playing time and role. You're talking about Marcus Semien being the second baseman 
for an extended period of time down there in Texas. Acuna now is going to have an opportunity to develop and take that role in New York. Uh, I think being in the Big Apple is a plus if you're a player like Acuna, again, playing against his brother in that NL East. And then Khalil Watson, we talked about it being traded to a contact-first organization, could really help shore up some of the issues he's shown as a prospect. All right, let's move on now to number four through six. We talked about it earlier, Jake Etter, getting a rotation spot sooner rather than later, moving from the Marlins to the White Sox. Nick Nostrini, same thing, going to the White Sox. Ryan Clifford also has a home run tonight, going to the Mets. Anything else you want to mention on these three guys, four through six? No, but Clifford's home run tonight was really nice. If you have an opportunity, jump on Twitter. Um, I will have Great swing, great swing. All right, we've got three more uh, risers, um, seven through nine. Number seven, Dominic Canzone, for the simple fact he's going to get some playing time now. Thomas Segesi, you already mentioned he's going to be Matt McClain 2.0. And then this is a guy we didn't talk about, is Zach Showalter. I believe he was the Orioles. He went to the Cardinals. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. Um, yeah, so that rounds out our risers anything you want to mention on canzone sagacy or showalter yeah just that you know we took the matt mcclain 2.0 on there and, and sagacy just baseball player 511 um name to keep an eye on i think he's a guy that might come up next year and you know you fantasy managers may not be too excited about him but you know he's a really good piece to add to your organization if you're a dynasty member um, or even if you're a redraft league next year, just keep your eyes out because I think he could have a plug-and-play opportunity for you, much like Matt McLean did this year. Nice. Let's move on to the fallers. We've got seven of them. Um, no surprise here. There's going to be a lot of Orioles and Reds. So the first one I have is Novi Marte. He's ready. He's got nowhere to go. Second one, Kobe Mayo. Um, stays in Baltimore. And then Connor Norby. I mean, we might as well just go through it. Heston Kierstad, pretty much all of the Orioles. Anything you want to mention on these guys? No, just that. Again, they're going to have some decisions to be made. Um, you know, they decided to hold on to um, Keston Hirstead and Kobe Mayo, like two very nice prospects that I think should be climbing boards. But again, like you have that left field wall in Baltimore that's going to affect Mayo. Um, Keston Hirstead outfielder first baseman like what we have listed down in our rundown is crowded funnel and that's just the truth there are so yeah. many prospects within this orioles organization who is going to essentially lose prospect pedigree because they were not given an opportunity that's the question all right the next three we have is a little contradicting because the number five faller we have is dominic canzone now we had him as a riser because of playing time but he's a faller for the simple fact that his home field is now going to be T-Mobile ballpark, and that is very pitcher-friendly. So he's going to have a little rough time translating that power. Ryan Bliss going to Seattle as well, same thing. And then Jackson Wolf, that was a Padres deal going to the Pirates. I'm not entirely sure, but Jackson Wolf was one of the higher-end prospect pitchers for the Padres. I think he came up, pitched once, got obliterated but he's going to the Pittsburgh Pirates who don't do the best at um, developing their pitchers. So that is the reason why he's a faller. Anything else you want to mention on these last fallers, Canzone, Bliss, and Jackson Wolf? Yeah, I think Jackson Wolf, uh, obviously making his debut this past week, you know, now switching organizations, it's, it's kind of a bummer for him. Um, but a lot of these names that we're talking about too, we, we need to see more things play out. So this is, again, yet just a reaction post deadline. Um, I think Jackson Wolf is a name I'm definitely going to keep an eye on. 
uh, Ryan Bliss as well. Absolutely. And that does it for everything that happened at the trade deadline. Obviously, there was more trades that went down a little bit lower impact, but those were the biggest takeaways that Matt and I had for the trade deadline. It was awesome to see it go down or most of it go down while we were in New York or waiting for our flights to take off. Uh, that was actually, I actually enjoyed that. That was kind of nice. No distractions. You're sitting there waiting for a layover. You get some info on the trade trade deadline market. So that was fun to watch. Um, until then, I think we have the AL East prospect risers and fallers for you guys next week. And then that'll wrap up what we have for risers and fallers. And then we'll go over some new segments for you guys. Until then, we'll talk to you guys later.